Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 53, verse 12. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs And carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Therefore, sorry, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Would you be seated as we pray?
Father, my only hope is that these words that we've just read would really be grasped. It's not just my prayer, it's all of our prayers, or or at least many here, we're uniting right now this prayer before you, in this prayer before you, to ask that your spirit would take your word and cut deep. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Children have I reared and brought up, but they rebelled against me. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken Yahweh. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it. That's how the book of Isaiah begins. And it, and it starts there and it just continues on with blistering intensity. Isaiah is not a cute, cuddly book. It's a brutal book, honest about our state. It exposes Israel's sins. It exposes the nation's sins. It exposes the religious and political leaders' sins. It exposes a sin in the general populace. It exposes sin in the men. It exposes sin in the women. Let's just say Oprah and Ellen would not like Isaiah. It's not a self-esteem book. It doesn't leave us feeling good about ourselves. And yet, and yet, this same blistering book has some of the most profound statements about God's love and His mercy and His forgiveness in all of Scripture. God's love for sinners. He comes to rescue, we hear. He comes to redeem. He comes to restore, we're told. And this love, this rescuing, this restoring is not reserved for the religious and the upright. If you're good enough for God, He might just save you. No. As we've seen, this love is for hardened sinners. It's for rebellious Israel. It's for the rebellious amongst the nations. In one way, you could kind of imagine Isaiah like two leaning towers that seem like they're going to kind of push against each other and completely destroy each other because they're going in opposite directions. How is this building going to stand? 
How can a book expose sin and preach the pending judgment of God and also preach how God will rescue and redeem sinners? Is Isaiah schizophrenic? Were there more than two Isaiahs cobbled together by some uh, not-so-good editor? No. These two towers aren't destined to smash one another and topple the logic of the book. Instead, the two towers are two sides of an arch. And the capstone of that arch, the key piece that allows them both to hold together is Isaiah 53. Let me put it like this. How can a holy God love and forgive a sinner like me? Isaiah 53 is the answer. So let's have a look at it. Like the industry-altering concerts of the three tenors in the 1990s, so this passage has three distinct voices. And the first voice we see is Yahweh himself in chapter 52, verses 13 to 15. And Yahweh himself introduces the hero of the book of Isaiah, his servant, It's actually the fourth and final song in a series of four servant songs. So this is kind of the culmination of something Isaiah has been doing. Leading up to Isaiah 53, the last and final servant song. And right out of the gate, we realize this servant is something special. It says there in verse 13 that he shall act wisely. He'll be high and lifted up. Now time out for a second. I'm going to do something in this sermon. At various points in the sermon, I'm going to pause and have a doctrinal moment. Kind of like a commercial break, but I'm not trying to sell you anything. Instead, I'm trying to sharpen our Christology, that is our understanding of Jesus Christ. And this is the first of those doctrinal breaks I'm going to do. Yahweh just said that his servant is going to be high and lifted up. Now, you who've been tracking with us in our series in Isaiah, does that phrase by any chance ring a bell? Maybe it does for a few of you. Remember back in Isaiah chapter 6. There, Isaiah's given a vision of the Most High God. It's, it's It's the vision that sets the paradigm for the whole book. And how does it describe Yahweh God? It describes him with the words high and lifted up. Same exact words. 
And this phrase, high and lifted up, is used one other time in Isaiah, in chapter 57, verse 15. And there, again, it's unmistakable. It's a phrase used to describe the eternal God, the Holy One of Israel. Maybe you could say it like this. If you, if you think of the phrase, to infinity and beyond, you think of Buzz Lightyear. In Isaiah, when you hear the phrase, high and lifted up, you think of God himself. And so Isaiah's teaching us that Jesus, God's servant, is fully God. We don't need John 1 or Philippians 2 to prove the divinity of Jesus. We don't have to wait for some council of Nicaea to establish the divinity of Jesus. Right here, 700 years before Jesus was born, we see that this servant was fully God. So end of commercial. Yahweh's voice introduces his servant. Behold him, he says. Behold the one whom many are astonished at. Verse 14. Behold the one who will sprinkle clean many nations. Verse 15. Now why will people be astonished at him? Is it like in Isaiah 6? Because he's surrounded by angels who are saying, holy, 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 because... Even the hem of his royal robe fills the entire temple? Is it because of his entourage? Because the mountains melt in his presence? Why are people astonished? It's not that. You see it in verse 14? It's because he was disfigured. Marred beyond human semblance. This is a beaten, bloodied, uncomely servant, not your typical champion, a theme we'll see later. And yet this marred, disfigured champion shuts the mouths of kings, verse 15. This marred, disfigured champion allows deaf ears to hear and blinded eyes to see. Again, an echo of Isaiah 6, where Isaiah's commission was to preach to people who were blind and deaf. And this high and lifted up one makes a way for kings, and I think by extension their subjects, these spiritually destitute, to be revived. High and lifted up, Marred and disfigured, cleansing the nation, reversing our blindness. Behold him, Yahweh tells us. So I implore us, Maple Avenue, behold him. Pray that we might hear Yahweh's voice this morning and behold his servant. So Yahweh's voice introducing the servant then fades to the background. And in 53, 1 to 6, we hear a new voice. 
or more accurately, a collection of voices, and I'll call these the, the witnesses, the witnesses in 53, 1-6. And they begin with a question. Who will believe us? Who can see Yahweh's mighty saving arm? And then they describe this servant in ways that explain why their message might seem a bit implausible. If he were applying for a position, this would be his resume. Not a natural-born leader. Neither his form nor his majesty demand attention. No it factor, no chutzpah, no debonair good looks. Also, the people despise him. They reject him. But there is one thing he's good at, suffering. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Again, not your typical champion. I mean, verse 3 says that he's one of those guys that people don't even want to look at. Okay, pause. Interrupting the broadcast to bring you another important announcement. Did you notice in verse 2, it says that the servant grew up before him. In Yahweh's introduction, he talked about him in connection to a human semblance. Here we're seeing that he's like a plant starting young and then growing. And then we see all this human language for him. He, he knows grief. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it means to be despised. Jesus wasn't only fully God. He was also fully man. Our high priest is able to sympathize with us in our weakness because he became like one of us and knew our suffering. Jesus, God's servant, would be a human like us, a baby that grows up. Fully God, but fully man. And now we'll return to our regular programming. In that commercial, I mentioned how Jesus was like a young plant. But verse 2 also says that he was like a root out of dry ground. Now, again, for us who've been tracking in Isaiah, this has been one of Isaiah's favorite clues that he's been dropping all along the way. Way, way back in chapter 4, verse 2, he says that the sinful nation will one day be redeemed because of Yahweh's branch which is going to become beautiful and glorious. What are you talking about, Isaiah? And then in chapter 6, there's that chapter again in verse 13, Yahweh tells the idea that it will be doom and gloom for Israel until, until from the stump some sort of new growth is going to appear. And then in chapter 11, verse 1, he says that the hope of the rebels was a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch that will produce fruit. I could give other examples, but you see what Isaiah's been doing? And now he comes and he tells us that this branch is here. 
This is the moment. This servant is the one. He's the branch I've been telling you about. Now at last we get to learn how the stump root branch allows sinful people to know salvation. And then pick up again in verse 3. Continuing his resume. Despised, rejected, acquainted with grief. And at the end of that same verse, the witnesses make a critical confession. We esteemed him not. It's not just the world out there that rejects God's chosen servant. We ourselves did. He didn't measure up. He wasn't our cup of tea. We examined it and we concluded he was not worthy of our esteem. But something happened for these witnesses. We're not told what it is. They go from not esteeming him to realizing how critical his work is. Look at verses 4 and 5. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Okay, pause again. Nearly every historian has concluded that Jesus died on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth died. The critical question is why? Why did he die on the cross? And the Bible answers that question again 700 years before it would happen. He was dying as a substitute. Talk about Christology, right doctrine, understanding Jesus Christ correctly. This is perhaps the most critical biblical doctrine and certain Christological direction doctrine there is. It's called substitutionary atonement. Atonement, meaning he's paying the due penalty for something we've done. Our rebellion must be atoned for. And how does that happen? According to the Bible, the only way for it to happen is for the sinless servant to be our substitute. I want to be plain on this. When we choose our own way, Instead of God's, no matter how noble we think we're being, it is an act of cosmic treason against our creator God. And like Adam's original sin, our rebellion against God's good kingdom would ruin it for everybody. It's kind of like poisoning the water supply. And so God must crush those who would ruin the goodness and beauty of his kingdom. 
Our sin deserves death. It must be dealt with. I was talking to a man at another church. Uh, I mentioned I was at a church in Toronto a couple weeks ago, and a man came up to me afterwards, and he was telling me that just, just a few years ago, he'd reached the pinnacle of his career. All, all his dreams, he'd finally arrived. And he realized how empty it was. And that left him reflecting on his life, and he was gripped by decisions that he had made that he knew were wrong decisions. And he couldn't shake it. He was in a depression. His friends would gather around and say, eh, it's not that big of a deal, just get over it. But he knew, no, I've made wrong decisions with my life. So he started searching for different religions and exploring what they had to say and reading their holy books. And finally he came across the scriptures. And he told me, Those are the, that's the first book that was honest about my sin. And that same book, which was, which was honest about speaking how bad his sin was, was the book that showed him the way out of his indelible guilt that stains our souls. The servant takes our sin. Substitutionary atonement. Not a doctrine invented by the Protestant reformers. A doctrine taught in Isaiah 53. Okay, end of aside. Substitutionary atonement. So the witnesses have said they'd likewise rejected the grieving servant. But something had changed. They'd come to realize that he had died for them. And then in verse 6, the witnesses tell us that this is actually the state of all of us. All of us are rebels. All of us have gone astray. They use the image of a sheep. Now, in this case, it's not a flattering comparison. Sorry. Sheep aren't the brightest of animals. I don't know. There's a viral video that's gone around. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's, it's a... It's a a shepherding scene. So there's the shepherd and the sheep has gotten lodged into a, a ditch or a crevice. And the, lay, the, the shepherd's working so hard and finally is able to dislodge, dislodge the sheep. And, and the sheep is so excited, it gets out and takes two big jumps and then literally jumps head first into the same exact ditch. All we like sheep. Ain't nobody gonna tell me what to do. I know best. Then we make a mess of things again. We might not be bright, but we're stubborn. So we need a savior. Not one with a resume of might and power, but one with a resume of suffering and grief. Wounds that came because he was suffering in our place for our sins smitten by God, crushed by Yahweh in our place. Maple Avenue, let us behold Jesus. Behold our substitute. If not for him, we would be the ones stricken, smitten, afflicted, crushed. 
the end of verse 6, the second set of voices fade away, and the third voice rises. This time it's Isaiah's in verses 7 to 10. Isaiah's voice in verses 7 to 10. The prophet, he knows that this is the capstone of his magnificent arch. And so he must lend his own voice, even if he's covering some of the same ground. This servant was oppressed and afflicted, he says. He did so because of the transgression of his people, he says. But it's even more than that. We're told he opened not his mouth. All the abuse heaped upon him, and he endured it willingly, without resistance. And this time the sheep analogy is a little more flattering stands there calmly like when a sheep has its wool sheared. He simply stands there and allows the atrocities to overwhelm him, even as he's slaughtered. Verse 8 makes clear that what has happened to him was not just. He didn't deserve the suffering. It was a miscarriage of justice, if ever there was one. And then we're told the awful news that he was cut off from the land of the living. God's high and exalted servant died. Why? Isaiah says, for the transgressions of my own people. Now we know it's not just the Jews because back in 52, 15, he was cleansing all the nations. That means the innocent servant died for your sins, for my sins. And worse, his contemporaries didn't even give it a thought. Who considered it? Isaiah laments in verse 8. And the haunting answer to the rhetorical question is implied. Nobody. He's dead. He died for our sins. And we take no notice of him. And so Isaiah buries him in verse 9. Jesus died for our sins according to scriptures. He was buried. Okay. Time for another commercial break. Our doctrinal break. Did you notice the emphasis on Jesus' innocence at the end of verse 9? If you look down at verse 11, Yahweh calls his servant righteous. So he's fully God, fully man. But even though a man, he lived a sinless life. This is another key point of doctrine about Christ, his sinless life. He had to be sinless. Otherwise, he couldn't have been our substitute. And he had to be sinless Otherwise, he couldn't have offered us his righteousness. 
So Isaiah foretells the sinless life of Jesus because he wants our doctrine of Jesus to be rock solid. Okay, that was a short one. Back to the passage. Verses 8 and 9 have driven home the sobering message that Jesus would suffer for our sins and die in our place. I mentioned verses nine to, verse 9's description of his burial. It says he was with a rich man in his death. That's one of those specific details that God loves to just drop into some of his prophecies. I mean, nobody could have been that specific. The suffering marred, rejected man is going to be buried in a rich man's grave? You can't foretell those kind of things unless you're the author of history, which God is. Then verse 10 gives us another profound, paradigm-altering reality. Look at it, verse 10. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. Same God who said, Behold my servant, he shall be high and lifted up. This God is the one who willed him to suffer so. This God is the one who put him to such grief. I want to emphasize here the oneness of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit together willing this. You see, Jesus' death was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was not an accident. It was God's will. I'm going to pause again for another doctrinal aside. Already learned Jesus was fully God. We've learned that he took on flesh, grew up before us, lived a sinless life. We learned that he died as our substitute, taking our sins upon himself. But then at the end of verse 10, we learn one more critical truth. The one who dies will also rise. You see it? At the end of verse 10, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. Risen. Risen indeed. Because, because if Jesus successfully deals with sin, it means he is able to cancel sin's offspring, which is death. According to the Bible, death is here because of sin. Our rebellion cut us off from our creator, and therefore all of creation is subject to death. Death spreads to all. So Jesus' resurrection proves that he did in fact make a satisfactory atonement for our sins. In a sense, anybody when they're dying could say, hey, I'm doing this for the sins of the whole world. But Jesus proved that those words were not empty because he rose from the dead. We often think of Isaiah 53 as the great prophecy of Jesus' death. But it also predicts his resurrection, another key aspect of our Christology. He truly rose from the dead. So, back in the flow Isaiah's words end in verse 10. 
he ends by saying that the will of Yahweh, the will of Yahweh prospers in his hands. Have you ever wondered what God's will is? Well, the will of Yahweh prospers in the servant's hands. Indeed. Because it's his will. His will is our restoration. It's our healing. It's our forgiveness. It's our peace. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. Yahweh's will is for sinners like you and like me to be restored to Him and to be forgiven. He's calling on us to turn to Him and come to His servant. If we'll just turn and embrace Jesus. He's so committed to that will that His servant gave Himself over like a sheep to die for our transgressions. Let's marvel at the heart of our God, the love of our God. Maple Avenue, behold your God. Now there are only three tenors and there are only three voices in our passage and we've now heard from all of them. But the first voice, Yahweh's, returns in 53, 11 to 12. Yahweh's words open this critical passage and Yahweh's words close this critical passage. So verses 11 to 12, Yahweh's voice, which is a voice far better than Pavarotti's. God's voice reiterates what both the witnesses and Isaiah have already said. This servant died for our sins to make us right with the Father. That's verse 11. And as a result... Yahweh will exalt him. It's verse 12. We're going to hit two more uh, doctrinal commercials. They're embedded in both these verses, verses 11 and 12. So, verse 11, we see the doctrine of imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. Now that might sound like some very philosophical or academic phrase, but it's actually a jaw-dropping truth. So because of our sin, in a sense you could say we owe this immense debt. We are in the hole and big time. The doctrine of the substitutionary atonement means that Christ paid that penalty for us. He opened his bank account and paid it in full. We're completely out of the hole. But that's not the whole of the gospel. He didn't just forgive our sins. Look at the end of verse 11. It says, by his knowledge, he will make many to be accounted righteous accounted righteous so our debt was paid and we're kind of happy and we look and all of a sudden a Brinks truck shows up and security guards take start taking out of it briefcase after briefcase filled with a hundred dollar bills and saying this is yours this is yours this is yours and in a moment we went from being in massive debt to being filthy rich 
And then the brink trucks pulls away and this huge dump truck comes up and it just dumps its whole load right before our feet. Jewels and gold and silver and all precious things. All of it, ours. In a moment. Undeserved. All right there. This, this is what Jesus This is why Jesus' sinless life is so important because His righteousness is accounted to us. Our sin placed on Him so that it could be forgiven, the debt paid, but then His righteousness imputed to us. God doesn't just consider us, if we're in Christ, not guilty. We're not net neutral. He looks on us with the righteousness of Jesus. We're as net positive as we could possibly be. But James, you you don't know the kind of life I've lived. That could never be true of me, given how dirty and filthy I am, that I could be considered by the, the Creator as having the righteousness of Christ. And you're right. It makes no sense. But your argument is not with me. It's with God. It's His gospel. It's His salvation. It's the will of Yahweh. And that's what He says He's done. By Jesus' knowledge, acquired by going through our griefs, bearing our transgressions, being buried and then rising, by that knowledge, the righteous one accounts us as righteous. Just because it's hard for us to believe doesn't make it untrue. Fully God, fully man, sinless life, substitutionary atonement, resurrection, imputed righteousness. But it doesn't end there because there's one more Christological gem. It's the last one in verse 12. I want you to look at it there at the end of verse 12. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You see the risen Christ ascended into the heavens, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father and he makes intercession for his people. You notice the change in tenses in those last two phrases? He bore, past tense, the sins of many and makes, present tense, intercession for the transgressors. For those who entrust themselves to Jesus, He is actively, right now, as the risen king, making intercession for us. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 reasserts what Isaiah is saying here. It says that Jesus always always lives to make intercession for us. It's a a little discussed, often neglected aspect of the gospel, but Isaiah doesn't neglect it, and nor should we. We, if we're in Christ, have a present advocate on our behalf, a high priest who understands what we've been through and is interceding on our behalf even now. 
Maple Avenue, behold your Savior. See him and draw near to him. Entrust yourself fully to him that you might know all of these benefits. Worship him. Isaiah 53 is arguably the most famous passage in all of Isaiah. After spending the last year preaching through Isaiah, I'm now convinced it's the most important chapter in Isaiah. Because because it functions like that capstone in the archway. How can a book that exposes sin so piercingly talk about redemption and restoration? How can a book that hammers home God's pending wrath against sinners talk about God's love and forgiveness? The logic doesn't hold except for Isaiah 53. Or let me put it like this. How can a holy God forgive a sinner like me? Isaiah 53. Because Jesus died in my place was stricken, smitten, and afflicted for me and then offered me his righteousness. Hallelujah. What a Savior.